everyone. Welcome to QIC's QPod Investor Podcast Series. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director for Global Business Development. And each Monday morning, we invite our listeners into our Liquid Market Team's Financial Market Update Meeting to get a briefing on the latest themes impacting the equity, fixed income, commodity, currency, and volatility markets. Good morning, everyone. It is the 27th of July, and we start the day with the pandemic continuing to deepen its effects. Last week, Merck CEO Kenneth Fraser warned of the time it takes to create a vaccine and to manage our vaccine hopes. Amongst this, China and US tensions to continue to intensify with what's being called tit-for-tat diplomacy, with embassy closures in both Chengdu and Houston. And domestically in the US, we continue to hear reports of civil unrest culminating in the mayor of Portland being tear-gassed. Stu, can I please bring you into the conversation? We we start today with over 16 million confirmed cases of COVID. And of course, locally, Melbourne and Sydney continue to battle the spread of the virus. How are you seeing the global macroeconomic environment? And with investors starting to look at foreign currency now as an additional source of portfolio defensiveness, how is it affecting the currency markets? Thanks, Craig. Yep. Uh, I'll start with the themes that drove the price action last week. And as you mentioned, we have had a resurgence in coronavirus. But at the start of the week, Wall Street made some decent gains from Monday through Wednesday, uh, boosted by what appeared to be a bit of an inflection point in the number of new infections, uh, but also a stream of positive vaccine news, which got a lot of attention. Uh, and we also we've also seen ongoing positive economic data, the EU cutting a deal on the recovery fund, which represents a breakthrough in debt mutualization, and favorable progress through the early stages of the corporate earnings season. Uh, and of course, the pillar that really supports everything here is that incredibly accommodative monetary and fiscal policy, and the authorities remain resolute there. But however, as stocks have continued higher, there's an inertia that starts to pull in the other direction as investors reconsider valuation levels and particularly question the size of those mega cap growth stocks which have underpinned the rally on Wall Street. Uh, this left the market a bit more vulnerable to a setback and, and it came through with that surge in COVID infections later in the week and that escalation in tensions with China that you mentioned. And they're factors that the market's largely ignored over recent weeks, but does become a bit more sensitive as uh, valuation levels rise. And we've also seen some more evidence that the US economic recovery has been losing momentum uh, due to that uh, increasing uh, coronavirus spread and really the, the wind back in mobility. We've got this interesting dynamic now in markets where nominal bonds look broken as an inflation hedge, and investors are continuing to turn towards alternatives, including precious metals, inflation-linked bonds, and non-dollar assets to provide that inflation protection. But in terms of currencies, we saw the US dollar underperform and a breakout week for the euro, which has now rallied in 10 of the past 11 sessions. There's a number of combinations here, including that resolution of the EU recovery fund, but also that differentiation in economic outlook, which comes from Europe getting on top of the COVID crisis. And moreover, US monetary policy having already converged towards Europe and Japan, still looks to be the most activist with potential for more. Uh, and underpinning again, structurally, we've got those incredibly large, conspicuous fiscal deficits in the US. Thanks, Stu. Rob, uh, 
the students provide us there an update that there were some decent gains in the US. Um, so it sounds like the US markets and the equity markets in general are starting to shrug off those continued mixed data. Can we get an update from you on the equity markets, please? But can you also, when it comes to commodities, bring us up to speed? Over the weekend, Michael Armitage came out and said, we ain't seen nothing yet on gold prices. Is that where we should be focusing our attention or is it silver? Um, I'll leave it to you. Thanks, Greg. Um, the S&P uh, actually finished the week relatively flat after hitting a post-COVID high intra-week. After posting uh, all-time highs on Monday, the NASDAQ subsequently underperformed the market, finishing down around about 1.5%. The news, I guess, more globally was not much better with European and UK stocks, both posting minus 2 and minus 3%, respectively, while the Australian market slightly outperformed, only being down 70 basis points. Uh, equity volatility, um, the VIX finished again pretty flat over the week. However, the term structure is extremely st- extremely steep uh, with the first contract pricing at around about 28.6% volatility. And now that's a whopping 140% of annualized carry for over the next sort of two, three weeks. In commodities, um, despite gold actually hitting an all-time high of a little over $1,900 US an ounce, the big news in the week was actually silver. Uh, it added just over 16% on the week, swamping gold's meagre 5%. However, uh, it has, I guess, since the COVID crisis, um, it Silver actually lagged gold by as much as 28%. Uh, however, is now outperformed since the middle of February by about 7%. However, on a risk-adjusted basis, you'd still be owning, uh, still gold has hold, held the honours. Thanks, Rob. We might switch to uh, rate and economic data from Bev. Bev, last week the government released its July budget update. Both JobKeeper and JobSeeker were extended and tax cuts are now being forecast. Over the weekend, I found it interesting that Treasurer Frydenberg noted that the July budget update had some Thatcher inspirations in its design. With the budget forecast now set to blow out to $180 billion, how did the market react to the budget? And we, should we expect the inflation ninja to put the sword back in the sheath? Yeah, hi, Craig. Uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, it was a very big um, event for markets. So there's certainly a, a hurdle that the market needed to get to and very pleasing that a lot of those measures that we've been talking about for some time were extended. In terms of market reaction, there was very little. I mean, a lot of those details had been leaked uh, prior to the, the budget update last week. Um, we did get uh, the ratings agencies, S&P and Moody's, both confirm Australia's AAA sovereign rating was still intact uh, for the time being, saying that Australia was you know, well-placed to wear that budget deficit blowout as long as it was temporary. And I think that's the key here, that you know they are giving the, the government some time. Um, they expect you know to, to come back in, I guess, 12 months and, and hope that the budget situation is starting to look a little bit better on a forward-looking basis by that time. But um, yeah, so as now, very little market reaction on that front. But domestically, the big the big event for this week is going to be the syndication of the 2051 new 30-year benchmark bond. Um, and that was actually launched just this morning. Um, you know, we've spoken about 
you know, how steep Australia's yield curves are, you know, relative to global yield curves, um, and that with the the currency moves that we've seen for offshore investors, um, the the Aussie um, yield here is looking quite attractive. It probably won't get to the two percent level we we thought, we, you know, we could get to. Um, obviously, global yields ha, um, have moved a little bit lower over the course of the last week, so we're probably not going to get to two percent. Um, but we still think that one should go pretty well. So we'll give you an update on that um, as as we know more. Um, the other thing to highlight domestically, and I guess coming back um, to, 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 to Stu's comments, is we've got Aussie CPI um, being released on Wednesday this week. Uh, Q2 CPI, it is very likely to print at the weakest CPI ever recorded um, in Australia. So the market is expecting a minus 2% quarter on quarter fall, uh, taking annual inflation negative down to a negative half a percent, which would actually make it the lowest inflation rate in Australia since the 1960s. Um, obviously, you know, a couple of really key contributors to that weakness. Um, one was petrol and oil prices, which through the March quarter, you know, fell very sharply. And, and secondly, um, was the change to the childcare policy where the government, you know, introduced the free childcare policy for a while. And that basically is feeding through to a 97% reduction in childcare costs in the CPI. So a couple of really biggies that are dragging everything down. Um, but across the board, um, a lot of categories expected to, to show a lot of weakness. So core inflation also likely to print very weak, plus 0.1% is what's expected there. Um, and that has been affecting um, the Aussie market. It's certainly been something that has kept this market, I think, from seeing the same buoyancy that we've seen in the US market um, of late. You know, we've been talking about that, uh, that a lot. Um, that continued last week. So US BI is continuing to make, you know, new, new cyclical highs um, through this COVID recovery here. Um, Aussie really needs to get through the other side of the CPI, I think, is a big uncertainty, lots of potential um, volatility to get through. Just generally in bond market moves, it's still been very, very subdued in terms of, um, you know, day-to-day moves, but it, but it's definitely been one of a sort of a bull flattening move over the last week and, and US 10-year yields are now drifting to the lower end of their ranges for the last few months. So US 10s are sitting at 59 basis points. The, the 530s yield curve is flattened down now, sitting at its lowest levels or the flattest levels since early May. And I might, you know, hand over to Andrew and, and let him talk talk through what might be um, out there this week for the FOMC. Well, thanks, Beverly. Um, as Stu mentioned as well, we know that central bank liquidity and associated support has been a big driver of risky assets um, and in the last few months. And with that in mind, there's no bigger economy in the world than the US, and there's no big, more important central bank meeting than the US FOMC meeting, which meets on Wednesday US time this week. Um, as you alluded, as Bev alluded to, we expect no change from the FOMC this time round, and we ex- but we expect that asset purchases to continue to remain at that monthly pace of $80 billion for treasuries and $40 billion for um, agency MBS over the coming months. At this meeting, we expect no change in the level of interest rates or for guidance um, of those interest rates at this particular meeting. We expect the FOMC to continue to adopt a dovish stance um, undertaking whatever steps necessary to continue to support the economy, particularly given uh, the rising uptick in virus cases in several US states. However, this week's meeting is very important as well. We expect no change in forward guidance this time around. Uh, we'll be watching the press conference closely for hints around future policy actions. 
Um, we know that the Fed is conducting their first ever policy framework review, and all of the recent rhetoric from the Federal Reserve speakers suggests that this will most likely be unveiled uh, at the September meeting. And with short-term interest rates pinned at their effective lower bound, uh, it seems like the next evolution U.S. Federal Reserve policy is to will be to pledge to keep them there until the 2% inflation goal is sustainably achieved, i.e. it will mark a shift towards some form of inflation targeting within the U.S., so in this kind of context, average inflation target in the U.S. is important because it's a tacit agreement by the U.S. Federal Reserve to continue to let inflation run hot, run hot and, the, and by virtue of that, the U.S. economy um, continue to run hot. Uh, when I was in New York last year chatting to the – late last year chatting to U.S. Federal Reserve members, the big fear was around deflation and doing everything in their power to avoid that. Um, it seems as though the COVID-19 situation has given them some – some, some kind of cover to formalise that um, into policy this time round. And as, Be as Bev alluded to, we've been long US inflation break-evens now for several months. They continue to remain strongly outperforming, backstopped here by the US uh, Federal Reserve. They're up another six basis points last week, and we think that if we do get some kind of average inflation targeting headlines, that, that will continue to support um, these, these um, bonds in the, in the medium term. Thanks, Andrew. So just to sort of summarise there, at this point in time, no change in stimulus from the US government, in your opinion? That's right. No change at this meeting, but look for hints around possible upcoming changes. Okay. Continues to uh, have those market forces uh, pinning against each other. Paul, last week, uh, we had a lot of conversations around Europe and getting this uh, deal through. Stu's just alluded to us earlier that we managed to get a deal through. Uh, can you give us an update there, please? Yeah, totally good. Thanks. Um, essentially, Craig, it came through better than expected. It came through at about $750 billion um, in, in typical European fashion. It took an extra four or five days to thrash out. But what that meant was instead of the mix being more in favor of grants, i.e. grants that you don't pay back versus loans, what they did was they actually increased the size up to 750 So the amount of grants actually stayed roughly what the market was expecting, if not slightly better. Um, so generally, uh, a very positive result from the recovery fund. Uh, what's really important from a positive point of view is to remember that that this is something we've never seen, this federalization, this debt burden sharing that we alluded to earlier um, from a fiscal response in Europe. It's never really been seen before, not even in the sovereign crisis back in 2012. So I think that's something that's very significant and it's really given rise to this sort of Europe versus US outperformance scene that's going on. Uh, something that, that has been picked up on is that a lot of the disbursements aren't coming until fiscal year 2021 to 2022. Um, um, bear in mind the ESM is already in place for any bridging that's needed for places like Italy, for example. It's been um, it's been noted that they you know they have a heavy debt burden. Um, a lot of it is before April 2021, but that can easily be bridged from the ESM. And of course, they've eased those terms in the ESM, so that's something that holds a little less um, a little less issues than perhaps had done so in the past. So the recovery fund positive, but also on the COVID response, it, it, the, the theme is that Europe has broken that link between increased mobility and an increase in the virus rate. Now, that seems to be a very positive thing. Bev mentioned there, you know, Friday night, we, you know, those PMIs from Europe are coming in better than expected. 
versus U.S., where, you know, you're actually getting disappointing data. Um, Europe had this fiscal cliff already dealt with, you know, with a recovery fund, whereas U.S. still have a ranking uh, sort of arguing over their fiscal cliff and what they're going to do with their their weekly $600 paychecks that are being handed out. So certainly that theme of Europe outperforming U.S. is, is very much on vogue at the moment. You know, if we move on to, to emerging markets, I think that's somewhere that is, again, a strong outperformer just last week. Um, to give you an idea, um, you know, the hard currencies were up nearly 3%. That was similar to the S&P, whereas U.S. high yield only did about 0.7% on the week. So that theme that liquidity is going to continue to grind those credit spreads tighter for emerging markets, we think is there to stay, even though we do get some you know, COVID-related and sort of structural problems in, in emerging markets. I think that's very much, that's definitely a factor there. But the fact that we, you know, relatively, it's cheap, relatively, it's very attractive from a spread perspective. And then, Craig, like we've talked about, there's been no flows in emerging markets. Emerging markets are all about the flows, and, and we haven't seen those yet. And it'll be really interesting that when those flows start to return, which I suspect the data from last week will will tell us that that is the case, given the outperformance. Um, so we're starting to see those flows come back. So that's why we're quite positive on that side of the business as well. Thanks, Paul. And looking forward to seeing how the market reacted to that uplift uh, from the European decision. Uh, Rich, after a few weeks of having sort of subdued data from the macro credit space, of course, following what seemed to be major news once a week, can you give us an update, please, on how we're looking from a global macro perspective? Yeah, absolutely, Craig. Look, July's been an excellent month for, for credit spreads. The USIG index has actually rallied 17 basis points from 142 to 125 basis points. And, you know, we've seen a similar strong rally in credit spreads globally. And it's it's really the strong technicals again at play and they continue to persist in the credit markets and, you know, namely very low issuance. And this is not surprising given the start to the year we have and the over trillion dollars of issuance we had in the US in the first six months of the year but this month has actually been the slowest July since 2014 with only 43 bill printed in the US Europe has had similar low issuance um, Australia the same you know estimates for 2020 of uh, sorry for August um, 2020 of 50 bill if, if correct that'll be the slowest August since 2015 and then and then on the demand side we continue to see strong inflows into IG credit so last week we had the fifth largest inflow ever into USIG credit funds of $8 billion. And we know that money market funds are still waiting to sort of unwind the large balances that they built up um, during the recent COVID-related volatility. You are starting to see some of those balances come out, but there's still, you know, almost a trillion dollars sitting in, in money market funds in the US. And then, of course, we know, as, as a number of speakers have spoken about today, central banks are still buying you know, not only a large amount of government bonds, but also a large amount of credit with the ECB and the and the US Fed in there strongly. So, you know, this supply-demand dynamic has seen dealer inventories fall to very low levels. And so you put all this together and you get a really powerful combination of factors that has seen a secondary market squeeze tighter in, in July. Um, and, and it has been probably exacerbated by the low summer liquidity as well. And you know, particularly over the next week, we believe spreads can continue to move tighter um, and, and into month end. 
Fantastic, Rich. Thanks for that. Phil, just to bring us home, uh, can we please uh, get into the earnings season? I believe we're kicked off. And last week, there were some announcements in the press stating that we should expect a bit of a woeful start to the earnings season. Uh, how's it looking? Yeah, Craig. So in the US, um, we're about just over 25% of the way uh, through its uh, June quarter reporting season. And and yes, the data or the, the um, actual results are, are down, but that was very much already expected. So in terms of the beat-miss ratio, it's actually quite a strong season. So we've got over 80% of companies beating on earnings. Um, and, and so that's above the five-year average and the historic average. And they're beating by over 15% versus what the market was expecting. And if you strip it out, um, strip out financials as well, which we know had a, a strong June quarter, uh, it's still it's still very good in terms of corporates are beating by 12% plus um, versus expectations. So it's actually a decent season in terms of the um, co- companies outperforming market expectations. Um, but but as I said, the, the bar was quite low. And then if you look at, I guess, the remaining reporting season, so FactSet does their blended uh, earnings metric and, and blended earnings for June quarter expected to at this stage of the season, expected to decline by 42.4%. And that's improved from a decline of 46% at the start of the reporting season. And and the company's beating is part of that um, better blended earnings outcome. If we think about the week ahead, it's, it's a big week ahead this week. So we've got a, quite a number of the big tech stocks reporting. We've got Facebook um, on Wednesday night and then Apple, Google and Amazon on Thursday night. And then we've also got... Um, basically some big bellwether corporates. So we've got GE in the US, we've got GM, uh, there's also McDonald's. And then on the other side of the Atlantic, we've got several banks. So Deutsche, Barclays, Standard Chartered amongst those. And we've also got Volkswagen. So again, um, the autos are in play this week. Uh, we've got Airbus and AB InBev. So it's an important week this week. And if you look at, say, the autos, we've we talked a lot about the tech stocks, but in terms of the autos, it's quite interesting. So for GM, as an example, the, the market is expecting a $2.8 billion loss, um, and that's versus a $2.4 billion profit in the June quarter last year. But the market's also expecting a strong rebound in Q3. So certainly... Um, has profit bottoming in the June quarter. So the market's expecting Q3, which is September, to rebound to $1.7 billion and, and for revenue to rebound strongly then as well. So it, it's very important, not only the results for this quarter, but to see what, if any, outlook statements they give for next quarter. Phil, just a quick question from me. Uh, back in March, April, we are talking about companies coming to the market looking for ways to shore up their balance sheets. Are you expecting there to be a second run of that from companies going forward? Uh, I think at this stage, they've done a lot of the, hard, the heavy lifting already. So um, you've already, yeah, you, you, we've talked about that a lot. So certainly down here, there's been a lot of equity raisings. In the Northern Hemisphere, it's been about um, bolstering that liquidity. So I think they've already shored up their balance sheets to a large degree. And in the absence of a big second wave and, and I guess really extending um, the recessionary economic activity, probably not. Um, and, and credit has been heavily supported by that. What we do expect to see is if if you do get that improvement in activity and, and earnings and cash flow improving, we actually expect to start to see them use that liquidity to, to probably reduce or buy back debt. And again, that's a, a supportive technical for credit markets. 
Thanks, Phil. Thank you, everyone, for your contributions today. It's really interesting to note those markets continue to see the benefits of the stimulus over the economic impacts of COVID. And of course, gold and silver's run continues, so one to watch. And it was pleasing to hear the Australian AAA credit rating will remain intact after uh, an important uh, update from the July budget. And fundamentally, it seems that whilst credit continues to be a supported area, I liked Paul's comments there around uh, looking at EM going forward. Thank you for your contributions today. Thank you to our listeners for listening to QPod and have a super week ahead.